0: Well, good morning to you. Good to see you. I appreciate uh, Todd uh, speaking to us uh, last week. I know you enjoyed that. And uh, I'm glad to be back home myself. Well, Don's kind of forced my hand uh, on the title for next year. Something I've been wanting to do for a number of years with us. I think now's the time because we we generally spend a year in the Old Testament and then a year somewhere in the epistles or this year it's Acts. And uh, then the Gospels. So I'm I'm thinking next year is the time to get back to the Gospels. But what I'd like for us to do, I've wanted to study the Sermon on the Mount with you for some time, but uh, what I think we'll do is study the five sermons that Jesus gives in Matthew's Gospel. Because if you're familiar with Matthew's Gospel, and you will be after next year, uh, (laughs) like your Bible automatically opens to Matthew, Uh, Matthew is structured on the Sermons of Jesus. So you have the word and the deed of Jesus. So his ministry begins really with the Sermon on the Mount. And then you have the miracles in chapters 8 and 9 that follow. And then you have another sermon in chapter 10 and some more deeds in 11 and 12. And then the great uh, sermon on the uh, kingdom of God, the parables of the kingdom of God in Matthew 13. And then more activity in 14, 15, 16, 17. Then you get to 18 and the great sermon on the church and mutual forgiveness and how we live in community together. And then all the way up to 24 where you, you get the sermon on Mount Olivet. So what I'm thinking we'll do is... Jesus' preacher, that's what we're going to look at, is Jesus' sermons next year, and really dig into them. Matthew, in his gospel, we'll talk about this, of course, more in the fall. Matthew, in his gospel, really, you know, he says at the end, he quotes Jesus as saying, "...go into the world and make disciples of all nations." What Matthew then seems to be doing is to provide the discipleship manual uh, for training people how to walk with Christ. And he selects these sermons of Jesus which are in the key areas of discipleship. So if we men want to know how to be disciples of Jesus Christ and how to make disciples of Jesus Christ, it seems that it would be very logical we'd take Matthew's handbook and go through the teachings of Jesus and see exactly what that's all about. So that's what's in store for us next year. I look forward to it. Uh, I, I don't usually announce it until I feel good and ready and confident that that's exactly what we're going to do, but Don forced my hand this morning. So that's it. And now, now that I've said it publicly, I'm stuck. So that's what we're going to do. All right. Uh, and I'm looking forward to it. I also look forward to finishing chapters 26, 27, 28 of Acts because, uh, they all have very important Item source. Today is the massive defense that Paul makes before King Herod Agrippa II, which is my favorite of all of his defenses. It's the uh, most extensive, and it shows us so many aspects of how we are to minister the gospel in very difficult circumstances, because this is a very difficult circumstance for the Apostle Paul. Paul has had over two years to prepare for this, He's been thinking about it a long time. He's put his thoughts together. And what we see is Paul at his deliberate best, not only in the content of the message he's communicating, but the way in which he does it. So for us who want to be effective right here in Memphis, it gives us the content of what we're supposed to be doing and gives us the methodology by which we do it. So it's a very important chapter in your Bible, Acts chapter 26. Then next week we'll look at 27, which is Paul in shipwreck. And there are some amazing lessons that we need to learn because some of you have experienced what you would call a shipwreck. Now, Paul had several shipwrecks. He had a lot of frequent flyer miles, frequent sailor miles, and he had run into every imaginable difficulty in traveling. And so this is the most famous of them all. In the midst of it, we're going to learn lessons about how we uh, sail, uh, especially into the midst of a storm. Then, of course, in 28, we get the great climax of the book of Acts where Paul is ministering in the imperial uh, capital of Rome itself. So these, these three weeks are important to us. We'll finish up with that. And then, of course, some are amens. Well, let's uh, turn to chapter 25. We'll look at the end of 25 because where Todd left us off last time was Paul before Herod Agrippa and Bernice, his half-sister... And of course, Festus, who in all of his cowardice was left in confusion about how to handle this legal case, looking to Herod Agrippa II for advice. And we pick it up in verse 23 with the trial itself. So uh, the the setting has has been given to us in verses 13 through 22. Now we're going to begin with the actual day of the trial uh, when the uh, elite a process into the arena, and Paul is brought in uh, in chains to appear before them. An amazing scene in the Bible. Let's look then at verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to me, the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Duh. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion... I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem... I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor, and Bernus, and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Amen. You know, the, these past weeks I've had several things uh, that have really um, affected me. Uh, one is uh, reading most of the way through a Steve Jobs' biography uh, by Isaacson. And if you've read it, uh, you, you've probably been impressed, as I have, with a couple of things. One is the uh, gigantic genius uh, of this man. And, you know, we all have little things in our pockets. Some of you may have them out on your desk, you know, that we have that because of Steve Jobs. You know, our iPads and our iPhones and Apple Corporation and some other things. Uh, you also were impressed by uh, the uh, unchristian and even anti-christian mentality and behavior, uh, the moral corruption of his life, the lack of spiritual direction. And it can be really confusing how someone can be so great and so fabulously wealthy and successful and receive acclaim from presidents and kings all over the world and be just the contrary of everything the Bible suggests. Uh, Likewise, on uh, Allison's and my 40th wedding anniversary, we took a little 10-day trip. I went to Boston to preach a couple Sundays ago and then just went right across the pond over to Paris for a week. And uh, the only time I've been to Paris was on my way to a jungle somewhere, you know, on a missions trip. So this was Paris 101 for us. And uh, I told some younger guys who asked me about it the other day, if you plan to go on your 40th, just save for forty years because you'll need it when you get to Paris. It's a very, very expensive place, but uh, it was a great lesson in history for me. You know, I know know something about uh, the church history in France, and it's one reason I've never been enamored uh, by uh, French history because of the way in which the church itself has acted, and the way in which the seculars have treated the church. And of course, the French Revolution was a, a murderous secular reaction to both the crown and the church. And then when you look at how the crown and the church together were collaborating in ripping the people off and giving themselves enormous privileges and grandiose castles everywhere, uh, you can understand why there was a secular, murderous uh, French Revolution uh, in the 18th century. Uh, but once again, just being at first sight and seeing what Louis the 14th had created for himself and all the wealth and prestige and... And uh, these people uh, who really were not living out the gospel at all, and yet very famously wealthy, very powerful, with all the privileges of life. And to me, the greatest Christian thinker ever in the French language was a man named John Calvin. And I spent a week with tour guides in this place, in this place, in this place. And an entire week, John Calvin's name was not mentioned once Not once. And so you you end up with those two experiences, reading about Steve Jobs and all of his success, and then you you look at the the, the wealthy and the powerful in France and all of their success, and it it takes you to Psalm 73. I look at the rich and the arrogant, and I found my heart becoming envious. You know how, how the psalmist says it. And he he goes on and on in Psalm 73 about the oppressive reality of people who are doing uh, unrighteous, unjust things are being fabulously successful. And he says, I became very confused with this. My feet almost slipped. And then you remember what he said. It was when I entered the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. That's when he gained clarity and sanity. And so it is in eternity there's no other way to explain this chaos there's no other way to explain this inversion of what seems to be fairness right and wrong there, no, there seems to be no other way to invert the idea of who's famous and who's remembered and who's not and how you are going to be remembered or not remembered there seems to be no justice or fairness to it until you put, press your mind into eternity and you you bow before the eternal righteous judgments of the living God and it's difficult to live in this life. If you think and if you observe and if you take notes on what you see around you, what you see is a lot of things that apart from the church and apart from the Bible and apart from the Spirit and apart from your contemplation of eternal reality will lead you to grand confusion. And if we look at a text like this and what we see here is a, an encounter between abject poverty in the Apostle Paul an enormous wealth and privilege with Herod Agrippa II, who was the only living son of Herod Agrippa I, whom you may remember from chapter 12, beheaded our first apostle. This is his son. He's the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who, of course, destroyed hundreds of infants in Judea, trying to kill Jesus when he was a baby, and that's the reason the Holy Family fled to, to Egypt. This is Herod Agrippa II. Enormous power, great prestige, all the right bloodlines, and he's in charge. And look at this scene in the very first verse that we're reading. Here you have tremendous pomp and ceremony, and you can only imagine how all the instruments, musical instruments of the Roman kingdom, even Jewish instruments, were brought together in symphonic glory to make way musically for the entrance of all the royalty. And... What scholars tell us is that it's likely that these tribunes who were there, and they would be the commanders, the lieutenant colonels, who commanded a thousand people, and they had centurions, ten centurions under them, who commanded the 100s. There were five uh, uh, tribunes known to be in that region. That was the uh, measure of the Roman military that was in Caesarea guarding Palestine. So all these five tribunes come in their scarlet beautiful military garb in their robes. And then following them would be the prominent people of Caesarea. Those would be the uh, political people, consultants to the king and others who had gained prominence. They would come in in their finery. Following that would be Festus himself. And he would be robed either in purple or scarlet, probably also in scarlet. When everything set... Now we're ready for the entrance of the great king, Herod Agrippa II. And he comes, scholars tell us, in his purple robes, making him distinctively noticeable by all the people, and he comes with great pomp and ceremony, and you can only imagine what that would be like. When everything is set, now Festus calls in Paul. And here comes the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, probably the greatest man who ever lived since Jesus Christ. And how does he make his entrance? He comes in in tattered prison garb with chains off his arms and his legs. And he's to stand before this court. You've got to get that scene in your mind. And so, gentlemen, when you find yourself in an intimidating circumstance, it can be intimidated for a number of reasons, either wealth or power or prestige or reputation or even physical strength. There are many ways in which we can be intimidated. Go back to this setting. And ask the Lord to give you wisdom how to respond as a Christian man in the midst of great tyranny or intimidation. Because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul had to face. And I don't care who you are, whether you have the confidence of the Apostle Paul or even the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll find your body reacting. You'll find your nerves shattered. you find yourself, uh, not Christ so much, but even the Apostle Paul who was a sinner like ourselves with every temptation simply to cave in and dissolve in the face of this great power. You know, Chuck Colson uh, died just a few days ago, and he used to tell the story, I think it was in uh, Born Again, his first book, how many times as consultant to President Nixon, he would have people who would come to him from the outside of the White House and say, I want to tell the president a few things. You get me an appointment, I've got to tell him some things. I need to confront him about certain things. And Colson said he would arrange the appointment. He would go in with the man, sit in the Oval Office. And before his amazed eyes, he would just watch that critic just dissolve into sweetness and kindness and agree with President Nixon on everything. He said, I saw that over and over and over again where strong men in the face of that kind of power would just dissolve. We're all tempted to it. And the Apostle Paul was tempted in the kind of setting that he had. But what we're going to see is that we must be faithful. And this is the first point I want to make in verses 23 through 27. Christ must be presented in all places. He didn't say go into all the world except to those places that intimidate you. Go to all the poor only. Don't speak to the rich. Speak to those who are powerless. Don't speak to those who are powerful. No, we speak Christ In every circumstance. We present Him differently in different circumstances. We'll get to that. But we present Him wherever we go. Wherever we go. And so if we go into places that might be naturally intimidating, Christ goes with us. He's in us. He's before us. He's behind us. He's over us. He's under us. He's our only hope. He's all we have. And we present Him in all places. And we see in verse 23, first of all, in the face of power and wealth... And here you have it, even before Agrippa and Bernice. And here you have Agrippa and Bernice who who are half-siblings. And uh, the rumors are everywhere that they have an ancestral relationship, uh, Agrippa and Bernice. And the Roman court was just full of sexual immorality and other kinds of immorality as well, and yet very, very powerful. But you find that uh, Jesus said to us in Luke twenty-one, twelve: these are the kind of places that sometimes we'll go and he'll give us the words to speak when we get there. Secondly, not only in the face of power and wealth, but in verses 24 through 27, in the face of cowardice and deception, that would be Festus. And you notice Festus speaks up and he does several things. First thing he does is shift the blame. Blame shifting. Verse 24. You see, this man from whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me. I'm just a mediator. I really didn't start this. This is not my problem, it's the Jewish people's problem. They came to me and asked for my help instead of saying, Agrippa, I screwed up. I should have handled this thing differently a long time ago. He's shifting blame. He's blaming the Jews for being a complaining religious people. Uh, Secondly, notice in verse 25 a little image management here. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death and. As he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. Here's the truth. I, I was wrongly requiring him to go back to Jerusalem to be tried. And on the way, I knew there would be a plot to kill him. And I suggested that to him. And that's the reason he appealed to Caesar. And now I'm trapped. Because when you appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen, you've got a right to appeal to Caesar. Caesar. And that's an irrevocable right. And on the other hand, he never was charged with anything that makes any sense. If I'm the grand jury, I'm not going to indict him because there's no reasonable charge. There's no probable cause here. There's no likelihood of guilt. So Festus, instead of taking the blame himself for being a lousy administrator, he manages his own image. And thirdly, now I look at spinning in verses 26 and 27. Here's my little problem. I have nothing definite to write. To my Lord. And Lord would be the same word that we use for Jesus. It's Lord or Sir. And Caesar here is Lord. To my Lord. Caesar is my Lord. I don't have anything to write to him. Therefore, I brought him before all of y'all. He's a southerner after all, y'all. And especially before you, King Agrippa. And why would it be especially before King Agrippa? Here's why. King Agrippa was known for his great knowledge of Jewish religion. And he knew the debates and the discussions and the nuances. So Festus was very glad to have somebody there who knew what he was talking about to adjudicate this case or give him advice. Well, we find Paul was happy too because he he will appeal to that knowledge that Agrippa has, uh, as we'll see later. So that's the reason that he says, especially before you, uh, and that I may have something to write, for it does seem unreasonable to me. In sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. You better believe that's unreasonable. <laughs> and Caesar knows it's unreasonable and you're an idiot. <laughs> so Festus is a coward. Festus is deceptive. Festus is a blame shifter. He's a rear end coverer. He's Paul's got to deal with that crud. So do you. All the time. All the time. You have to deal with it. When I talk to you about your workplace, unless you're the boss and then you're the one being talked about, but if I talk to you about your workplace, what I get is just the mismanagement, the political games that are played, the cowardice, the insincerity, the the back-channeling, all this stuff that goes on in the workplace. Now, I'm just talking about the church. Now, let's talk about outside the church. (laughs) Did I get you now? Did I get you? All right. And that goes on all the time. You face it all the time. And here's the temptation for you to cower, for you to do one of several things. You can withdraw and just mind your own business and not engage it at all. You can attack it angrily and undiplomatically. Or you can get in and learn the game and play it. There's three three reasonable options that most people accept. There's a fourth option. And that's to be a gracious and kind and truthful man of God. And that's different from the other three. You're facing the same thing. I face the same thing. And let's see what the Apostle Paul does. He's facing great power and wealth, cowardice and deception. And here's what we see in chapter 26. Christ must be presented wisely in all places. We're going to need wisdom to present Him. And what we get in chapter 26 is a wise... Presentation of Jesus Christ in a very intimidating circumstance with power and wealth and deception and spin. First, let's notice this. Uh, scholars who know Roman rhetoric and Greek rhetoric will look at this speech of Paul and say that the first thing you have to notice about it is that he's using common Roman rhetorical form Let me show you what I mean. You don't have to take these down. You can if you want to. But this is what one commentator showed me. In verses 2 and 3, we have what's called the exordium E X O R D I U M. The exordium. Where Paul simply addresses himself to the court. And we'll see there's a way in which he does that that's very proper. Classic. This is classic speech making that Paul uses. And what I want us to notice in his address, of course, the essence of the gospel is suffused through this presentation. It's absolutely wonderful. But he does it in a way that respects the cultural norms that are around him. And so often when we want to be faithful to Christ, we're like a bull in a china shop. We have the truth, but we're smashing dishes everywhere. And you don't have to do that if you'll take your time and study the surrounding culture. Paul doesn't use Hebrew form, he uses Roman form because he's in a Roman court. He studied it and he's using his knowledge of culture to present the gospel in a wise manner, to use the forms that are familiar, to show respect for the culture. That he loves and likes the culture, he doesn't hate it. That's very important. You can't convince anyone of Christ if they don't think you like their city. You can't convince someone of following Christ if they don't think you like your company you're working in or the partnership that you have. If you're down in the mouth and destroying things and anti-everything, then your Christianity is just anti-one-more-thing. You have to identify and come to love what's around you that's lovable. And Paul shows respect for the lovable classical form of rhetoric. First thing is the exordium, Then verses 4 through 18 is called the narratio or the narration. The first one you might call the introduction or exhortation. Then a narration, narratio verses 4 through 18. This is Paul's basic story. He lays out his narration, verses 4 through 18. Thirdly, in classical form, you give what is called the confirmatio, the confirmation. Verses 19 and 20. And look what Paul says. He says uh, uh, in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 26, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So he confirms. He said, I have had a heavenly vision and I wasn't disobedient to it. There he's kind of nailing the, the stake in the ground. That's classic form. Fourthly, it's called the refutatio or the refutation. Verse 21. So in verse 21, he refutes his opponents. He says, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here, testify... I'm sorry, it's verse 22. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. There's his refutation. This is the reason they tried to kill me. So he's refuting what they're saying. And then the closing portion is called the peror- peroratio. You've heard of peroration. And this is in verses uh, 22 and 23. And there you can see he brings to great summary his argument in this peroration. And he says, "Uh, to this day I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying. So he's summarizing and orating. It's kind of his final flurry. Now that's classical Roman style. So when we present the gospel effectively to our neighbors, we must have studied how they think, how they communicate, what's important to them, how will they understand this. There are a zillion different ways to present Christ in any given situation. We want to present it in a way that's respectful of context. That's called contextualization. Now the first thing Paul does, we're going to look at it in a little bit different way. Uh, A on your outline, verses 1 through 3, is we give our report. And the point here is that... Paul is basically accounting to King Agrippa. He doesn't walk into court and say, you know what, I belong to Jesus. He is my judge. You have no authority over me. Suck it up. (laughs) He gives a report. He accounts. Now, I want us to notice three keys to Paul's approach that are underlying assumptions to what he does and why he does it. And I think maybe these are the real keys that will help us develop an intuition for how to be faithful regardless of our circumstances. The first thing I want you to notice is that Paul believes in the providence of God. Really, the first underlying assumption, this would go under A, under giving our report, the way, what's behind everything that we do is that we believe in the providence of God. we're going to see this at the end of the story as well. Paul knows that he's there as a result of an angry mob in Jerusalem and a corrupt and cowardly Roman uh, leadership. And he's there because of the pride and arrogance of men. He knows all that. But he believes something's behind it and overarching all of it. And that is the minute, detailed governance of Christ in every moment of history. Paul has no doubt in his mind that God has a purpose for Paul to be there. And so rather than reacting primarily to men who are right in front of us and arguing and disputing with them, primarily we're reacting to the providence of God who orders everything in our lives. Now once you get that in your head, and we'll see this especially in chapter 27, once you get this in your head, it changes the way you're reacting to your environment. It'll settle your anger. It'll give you greater clarity on what's really going on here. It'll open your mind to all kinds of possibilities. For example, we see Paul here addressing the Jews at one point. He, he's talking to King Agrippa and he says, so why is it, it's almost as though he turns to the Jews, why is it you all don't believe in the resurrection? You're Jews, aren't you? And then back to King Agrippa II. Paul's always aware of his circumstance and the possibilities of evangelism and representing Christ faithfully. That's what's going on. Paul has an opportunity to represent Christ faithfully in a difficult circumstance. But, hey, look, would you like to share Jesus Christ to all the Roman authorities in Palestine? Man, you got your opportunity now. You didn't expect it, you didn't expect to do it here in change. You thought you'd be in a pulpit with glass by Tiffany and stone walls in a nice sanctuary, and they'd all be lined up in the pews. But God in his providence found a better way for you to share Christ through your humility and brokenness. It's his plan. Paul's open to all this because he believes in the providence of God. And he believes in the promises of God and that God's providence leads to the fulfillment of His promises. And so Paul doesn't have to understand everything. And everything doesn't have to be right. All he has to know is he belongs to the Lord and the Lord is in charge and the Lord is in charge of bringing it to a successful end. He knows this. That's knowing God's providence. Secondly, Paul takes every occasion to honor Christ. So I believe in God's providence... And and by the way, this is not on the board. This is free. I'm not charging anything for this. The first thing is he believes in in God's providence. And the second thing is he knows what his task is. So the first thing is he knows who's in charge. second thing is he knows what what he's supposed to do. He's got the great commission. It's really clear. He knows what his job description is. And that's what he concerns himself with. Instead of pouting and whining about what's happened to him and how he got here and what he's struggling with and all of his problems, <clears throat> he's right on that task until he takes his last breath. And the third underlying reality, I think, that's contributing to Paul's intuitive response to this is that he is going to submit to every authority ordained by God. And that includes Herod, Agrippa II, and Festus, the governor. So put those three things together. Number one, he believes in the providence of God, that God's ordering everything to accomplish God's purposes through his life. Secondly, Paul knows his job description, to represent and honor Christ wherever he is. And thirdly, he's going to obey the ethical word of God. He's going to submit to the authorities. Now, that that will frame up everything we do. That will frame it up for you. Providence, mission, ethic. Now, Let's see what he does. So, when you come to verse 4 through 23, this long section that is primarily consists of what we call the narration in the Roman form. We tell our story. Paul simply tells his story. And here's why. We have seen how Paul in all of his life considered a clean conscience essential to a Christian leadership life. You have to be leading with a clean conscience. Which leads then to living with an open book. That doesn't mean I tell you all the nasty things I ever did. I don't want to scandalize you. That serves no purpose. But if some of you talk to Doug Hickson, my fraternity brother at University of Virginia, and he slips out a few stories, and you come to me and say, did you really do that? I say, yeah, sit down. I'll tell you about it. (laughs) And what I'll then do is take that story... And take your right to Christ with it. Because that's what Christ did with me. He took my story and led me right to Him. If you can't do that with your life, then you're not prepared to be a teacher or a leader. If you can't do it, there's a handle on you. There's a secret that can't come out and you don't know how to deal with it because you've not applied the gospel to it and you would not know what in the heck to say if your secret were discovered. Paul lived a wicked life, clothed in religious garments. Talk about religious spin at an ultimate level. That was the Apostle Paul. He used the church and the Bible and the name of God to commit atrocities of the first order. And it became his story. Why? He found the answer. He found the answer to his own atrocities, his own wicked secrets. They're now public. And they become a powerful weapon in his hand to help other people in their lives. You've got to deal with your life this way. It's got to be... Not, once again, it's not that I'm going to tell you everything, every wicked thing I did because I don't have time to give you the answer. All I do is scandalize you. You mean Christian people do that? Yeah, they do, actually. And we need time to talk about the answer. So there has to be an appropriate context for sharing those kinds of things. But as far as you're concerned, there has to be an open book that leads them to the clean conscience. So the result of having your mind washed by the gospel and the blood of Christ is you have a clean conscience and an open book. That's what the apostle is doing. He tells his story. Now... Notice what his story consists of. We're going to start moving fast here. First of all, how he opposed Christ. And that consists of two things. Verses 4 through 8 is about his background. And verse 9 through 11 is about his behavior, to which I've already alluded. Now, in his background, I want you to notice when he speaks about his opposing Christ, or we, we call it BC, you know, before Christ. Before I met Christ, before my life was transformed, this is what my life was like. Now, I want you to notice two important things about what Paul shares. How do you take a life of 55 years and boil it down to a paragraph? I mean, what are you going to select? Look what Paul selects, his background and his behavior. Now, about his background, notice what he tells you about his background. I'm one of you guys. I was Jewish. I am Jewish. It's in the present tense. When he talks about their religion... Would you please look with me at verse 4 or 5 in there where he says that according to the strictest party of what pronoun does he use? First person possessive, plural, our religion. Do you see what he's doing in sharing his background? He's enabling his hearers to identify with him because he's identifying with them. So if you want to lead someone to Christ, you're telling all your stories about the great experiences you had in, in New York and this guy's never traveled out of Memphis, I'm sorry, you're wasting your time. Tell something about yourself, about how you've connected to Memphis, and something that he understands and associates with. Paul is intentionally identifying with his audience here, including King Herod II, who has some Jewish blood in him too. So Paul is identifying himself as a Jew. Now in his behavior, verses 9-11, through what does he talk about? Does he say, And King Herod Agrippa II, and all who will hear me, I've traveled the world three times over, planting churches in every city that is known by the Roman people. And I found great response in crowds that received Jesus Christ. And if you're smart, you do the same thing. He could tell something about his behavior that way. Tell us all of your great exploits and the wonderful things you've done. And of course, all of this is attributable to Jesus Christ in my life. And give a little religious veneer over it and try to give credit to Jesus. You could do your behavior that way. But notice what Paul does. His audience is an unbelieving audience. He's especially appealing to the Jews that are present. And they are sinful Jews who are unredeemed. Paul is going to identify with them completely. And he says, look, I am no better than you are. In fact, I am worse than you are. You are opposing Christianity. You've got me in chains. Let me tell you what I did to people like me. I chased them all over the world to kill them. And the sooner the better. Don't think for a minute that I don't understand what you're dealing with and why you're doing it. Don't think for a minute that I don't understand the plausibility structure of your thinking. I do see the rationality of it to a certain degree. I understand why you see Christianity as a cult. I understand why you think we're self-righteous. I understand why you think that we, we just judge everybody and why we're exclusive and all these other things. I understand all that. I believed exactly what you believe and worse. And I was more zealous about it than most of you all are. So notice in Paul's story, he's carefully identifying with the culture and with their corruption, both. And he's not spinning a tale. This was really Paul. So he's not, he's not overstating his sin. He's not being falsely humble. He's just flat telling the truth. And he's selecting the truths that are most helpful for his hearers. Paul's thought about this a long time. And we need to think about it too. What are we saying about ourselves? How do we present ourselves? Are people, when they hear the gospel from us, thinking what they're supposed to be impressed with is how great we are as moral human beings? Or are they impressed with the transforming power of the gospel toward wicked men like us? Now, secondly... When you get to verses 12 through 18, notice what Paul does. He shows how he met Christ. So he shows his opposing Christ, and then he presents his meeting Christ. Now this involves three things, briefly. First of all, it involves a vision. At midday, O King, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. King, O oh King, you and I may have some theological differences. We may interpret the Bible differently. I'm just going to tell you my experience, and I have witnesses. This is what I saw. There was a light that cannot be explained, except that it came from heaven. And gentlemen, honestly, uh, you know, most of us would say, if we're believers this morning, you know, uh, I was converted, but I didn't have you know a Damascus Road experience. I didn't have a light from heaven. I'd like to suggest that that there are many things in common with this Damascus Road experience so that actually Christians do have Damascus Road experiences. Not exactly the same way, but the essence is the same. You have a vision. Christ presents Himself to you. He knocks you on your keister. He gets your attention. And you see there's something different that you had not taken into account. And I remember... um, Mine, mine was more progressive. Instead of in all condensed in one moment, my moments were spread out over a longer period of time. So in that sense, it differs from the, the road to Damascus. But here's where it's the same. I remember when my first child was born. I'm sitting there as an unbeliever. And this is just when men were first allowed into delivery rooms, you know, 37 years ago. And so I'm there, and, and I see this child come out of my wife's womb. And I'm, I'm just flabbergasted. And in that moment, I know there, there's a dawning of light, just a dawning of light. Not a brilliant light that blinded me yet, that knocked me back on my butt. But there was a dawning of light. I realized, you know what, I, my worldview can't take this into account. My worldview doesn't explain how a human being comes out of a mother's womb. There was. I, I realized, and, and, and I know many of you in this room, you had different experiences that just opened your mind to realize the worldview you had was you had everything in a nice little box, logical positivism, naturalism, you know, rationalism, whatever it was. You had everything in a nice box, and all of a sudden something exploded the box, and that's what happens. That's what happened to Paul. He had God in a box, and God obliterated the box, and shone a light, and then secondly, a voice. And God spoke directly to Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, not the church, but why are you persecuting me? And why did he say me? Because Christ so identifies with his people that when you hurt his people, you hurt him. Take heart in that. When people persecute you, they're persecuting Jesus Christ when they're persecuting you on the count of the gospel. And Christ spoke personally to Paul, audibly. Now let me tell you something. So you didn't hear an audible voice. But you experience something if you become a Christian that's every bit as sure, if not more sure, than an audible voice. Maybe it was thunder. Maybe I just didn't hear it quite right. But when Christ speaks in your heart, effectually calling you, that is an infallible calling, and it's a personal calling, and it's immediately to your heart. It's very individual to you. And that's what it means to become a Christian. Christ has actually spoken to your heart. Maybe not in audible words, but in irrevocable, real words to your heart. And thirdly, He gives vocation. Verses 16 through 18, He says, I appoint you. And I want you to notice three things about this vocation. First of all, Christ does the appointing. Notice in verse 16, I, uh, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. So first of all, in your calling, your vocation, you're appointed by Christ to be His servant. When you become a Christian, when He obliterates your tiny little worldview that didn't include Christ and didn't include uh, the Trinity and didn't include His providence over all things, and He obliterates that worldview, and He gives you a vision of Himself, He speaks to your heart and calls you, He immediately calls you into service. And that happened to Paul on the same day he was converted, in the same moment that he was converted, he was called to be a servant. Now, notice secondly, uh, not only did Christ appoint him, but Christ delivers us from our enemies. You find this in verse 17, delivering you from your people. Now, this, get this scene. He's surrounded by Jews who are charging him with all manner of false things. And Paul tells them, My God told me He was going to deliver me from you. And everywhere I've gone to preach to the Gentiles, I was told by God He'd deliver me from those Gentiles. And then notice in the text, And those are the people I'm going to minister to. Gentlemen, you don't just minister to your friends, you minister to your enemies. Some religions, when they minister to their enemies, they give them two choices. Well, three choices. You can agree with my religious convictions. I will chop off your head. Or, number three, you can submit yourself to the dominant religion and pay a special tax. That's one approach. The Christian approach is to present Christ and give them two choices. You can receive Jesus Christ and have eternal life, or you can reject him and I'll go on to the next person. And you can do